Welcome to the show, everybody. This is your boy, Lo Jackson, coming to you live with the Only You Podcast, where I'm doing book reviews that are helpful, meaningful, might give someone hope, may give someone a light in the darkness, that they may find their way through the darkness, even if it's on their knees for a little bit, to the light at the end of the tunnel. And today I'm going to be doing a book called A Man's Search for Meaning by Dr. Viktor Frankl. And if you don't know who Viktor Frankl is, uh, Viktor Emil Frankl, he was born on March 26th, 1905. He passed away on actually September 2nd, 1997, was an Austrian psychiatrist who founded Logotherapy. And if you don't know what Logotherapy is, it was developed um, by Dr. Frankel, who he is a neurologist and a psychiatrist. And it's based on the premises that the primary motivational force of an individual is to find a meaning in life. Frankel describes it as the third Vienna school of psychotherapy, along with Freud's psychoanalysis and Adler's individual psychology. Logotherapy is based on an existential analysis focusing on Kierkegaard's will to meaning as opposed to Alfred Adler's Nettetschen doctrine. It's a German word. It's a hard one to read. Of will to power or Freud's will to pleasure. And we've talked in other podcasts about Freud and Adler. They were one of the three biggest uh, psychologists ever. Rather than power or pleasure, logotherapy is founded upon the belief that striving to find meaning in life is the primary, most powerful, motivating, and driving force in humans. A short introduction to this system is given in Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. This book was written in 1946, and uh, in which he, you know, Frank, uh, Victor Frankel, he outlines how his theories helped to survive the Holocaust experience and how that experience further developed and uh, reinforced his theories. And if you guys have never um, read this book, I do seriously encourage you to run out, find this book, download it. You can find it free on the internet, actually. Um, this book is one, it it has been one of the best books I've ever read. Um, I read this book several years back, um, and I was in a really rough spot in my life then. Um, you can find this book on Kindle for $9.99. You can find it at Barnes and Noble for $9.99, Kobo for $8.99. And it's actually on Audible for $4.13 and and you can where I got it on Google Play for 8.25. It's one of the best reads I've ever read like I said. Um this gentleman talks about the Holocaust in this book, you guys. And I'll never forget how he described the moment when he realized that he had gotten a pea in his soup. The vegetable, a pea. Finding that one pea at the bottom of a liquid they called soup. 
it made him so excited. And when I was reading this book years ago, I can remember thinking, wow, I have no idea what it's like to go through something like Viktor Frankl did. And um, in this book, Man's Search for Meaning, you know, he talks in the beginning about how people were coming into the concentration camp in the beginning and you know he could tell that they were just like pretty much telling themselves oh it's going to be all right i'm going to be okay everything's going to be just fine and well we all know that it actually never wound up being um just fine um frankel frankel's early life um he was born um the middle of three children to gabriel frankel a uh civil servant in the Ministry of Social Service, and Elsa, a Jewish family, that was his mom. His interests in psychology and the role of develop, uh, excuse me, his interest in psychology and the role of meaning developed when he began taking night classes on applied psychology while in junior high school. As a teenager, he began corresponding with Sigmund Freud when he asked for permission to publish one of his papers. After graduation from high school in 1923, he studied medicine at the University of Vienna. And we all know that, and it's why I keep reading about all these psychologists and um, psychiatrists that come out of Vienna. And I really need to do some research to find out why that place is so apparent in the world, in the psychological world. I find it really uh, interesting. During his studies, he specialized in neurology and psychiatry with a focus on depression and suicide. Wow, he was he was studying suicide back in, you know, the 20s. That's wild. In 1924, Frankel's first scientific paper was published in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis. In the same year, he was president of the Socialites Mitzelschauser, Aschenschauser. That's another German hard word to speak say <laughs> so bear with me folks sorry the social democratic party of austria's youth movement for high school students during this time frankel began questioning the freudian approach to psychoanalysis he joined alfred adler's circle of students and published his second scientific paper psychotherapy and worldview it's funny, the more I get into this um, psychoanalysis, uh, psychiatry, and all these self-help books, the more I find all this stuff so interesting, and the mind is so interesting, and these people uh, that do this stuff, is um, they're just amazing, and they, it's amazing how they, uh, um, you know, put all the things in the mind together, and they study them so intricately that... When they finally write their final paper or their final book, it just makes so much sense. Like, why didn't I ever think of that? Or, I've been doing that for years and never even realized it. In 1941, Frankel married Tilly Grosser, who was a station nurse at Rothschild Hospital. <laughs> Rothschild. You guys know that the Rothschild are the most powerful, richest people in the whole world, and they always have been. They pretty much own everything. Soon after they were married, she became pregnant but they were forced to abort the baby. Tilly died in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Frankel's father, Gabriel, originally from Porschelsmoravela, wherever that is, died in the Theostad ghetto concentration camp on the 13th of February, 1943. He was 81. He died from starvation and pneumonia. 
His mother and brother Walter were both killed in Auschwitz. His sister Stella escaped to Austria. In 1947, Frankel married Eleanor Ellie Katharina Schwitzwinder. She was a practicing Catholic. The couple respected each other's religious backgrounds, both attended church and synagogue and celebrating Christmas and Hanukkah. They had one daughter, Gabriella, who went on to become a child psychologist. Although it was not known for 50 years, his wife and son-in-law reported after his death that he prayed every day and had memorized the words of daily Jewish prayers and psalms. Frankel died of heart failure in Vienna on September 2nd, 1997. I find that pretty awesome. He lived actually a very, very good life. Um, like I said, you guys, this is your boy Lo Jackson. I'm coming to you live with the Only You podcast. And right now, I'm doing Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He wrote this, or he published this book in 1947. I love the book when I read it, and I think you guys would too. Dr. Frankel, author, psychiatrist, sometimes asks his patients who suffer from a multitude of torments, great and small, why do you not commit suicide? From their answers, he can often find the guideline for his psychotherapy. In one life, there is love for one's child to tie to. In another life, a talent to be used. In a third, perhaps only lingering memories worth preserving. To weave these slender threads of a broken life into a firm pattern of meaning and responsibility is the object and challenge of logotherapy, which is Dr. Frankel's own version of modern existential analysis. Existential analysis. In this book, Dr. Frankel explains the experience which led to his discovery of logotherapy as a lifetime prisoner his bestial concentration camps he found himself stripped to naked existence oh in this book you guys he talks about how hard the wind blew through his clothes in the middle of winter when they were walking barefooted through snow with barely any clothes on and i mean at the at the end of the war they were pretty much all almost naked you know because the clothes have all been worn down they've been beaten bruised mistreated and this, you know, and and we all have read several other people's accounts of those times, you know, and Frank's one of them too. As long as it, as a longtime prisoner is bestow concentration camps, he found himself stripped to naked existence. His father, mother, brother, and his wife died in camps, or were sent to the gas oven, so that accepting for. His sister, his entire family, perished in these camps. How could he, every possession lost, every value destroyed, suffering from hunger, cold, and brutality, hourly expecting extermination, how could he find life worth preserving? A psychiatrist who personally has faced such extremity is a psychiatrist worth listening to. He is, if anyone, should be able to view our human condition wisely and with compassion. Dr. Frankel's words have a profoundly honest ring, for they rest on experience too deep for deception. 
what he has to say gains a prestige because of his present position on the medical faculty of the University of Vienna and because of the renown of the local therapy clinics that today are springing up in many lands patterned on his own famous neurological polyclinic in Vienna. One cannot help but compare Viktor Frankl's approach to theory and therapy with the work of his predecessor, Sigmund Freud. Both physicians concern themselves primarily with the nature and cure of neurosis. And I'm not sure if you guys know what neurosis is. It's like a, it's like an onset of somebody acting pretty wild and crazy out of nowhere. And I believe psychosis and neurosis are somewhat similar. Freud, don't quote me on that though. Freud finds the root of these distressing disorders in the anxiety caused by conflicting and unconscious motives. Frankel distinguishes several forms of neurosis and traces some of them to the failure of the sufferer to find meaning and a sense of responsibility in his existence. Freud stresses frustration in the sexual life, Frankel frustration and the will to meaning. In Europe today, there is a marked turning away from Freud and a widespread embracing of existential analysis, which takes several related forms, the school of logotherapy being one. It is characteristic of Frankl's tolerant outlook that he does not repudiate Freud, but builds gladly on his contributions, nor does he quarrel with other forms of existential therapy, but welcomes kinship with them, which makes sense, especially if you're in that field. The present narrative, brief though it is, is artfully constructed and gripping. On two occasions I have read it through at a single sitting, unable to break away from its spell. Somewhere, and I, I find that to be completely true with this book, it literally hook, line, and sinkered me as soon as I read it. This guy, I mean, in when you read what he writes, you can tell his words come from the utmost experience of the utmost serious situations that life could ever throw at one single human being at one time. We all have heard the horror stories of Auschwitz. Come on. This guy lived it. In Europe today, there is a mark turning away from the Freud and the Wides. Yeah, I read that already. I'm sorry. The present narrative, brief though it is, and Artfully constructed and gripping. Yes, I agree. Uh, Dr. Frankel introduces his own philosophy and logotherapy. He introduces it so gently into the continuing narrative that only after finishing the book does the reader realize that here is an essay of profound depth and not just one more brutal tale of concentration camps. Agreed. Um, from his autobiography... Wow, if I could really read the words that are written here. From his autobiographical fragment, the reader learns much. He learns that a human being does not... Excuse me. He learns what a human being does when he suddenly realizes he has nothing to lose except his so ridiculous naked life. Frankel's description of the mixed flow of emotion and apathy is arresting. First to the rescue comes a cold 
detached curiosity concerning one's fate, swiftly to come strategies to preserve the remnants of one's life, though the chances of surviving are slight. Hunger, humiliation, fear, and deep anger at injustice are rendered tolerable by closely regarded images of beloved persons, by religion, by a grim sense of humor, and even a glimpse of the healing beauties of nature, a tree, or a sunset. By these moments of comfort, do not establish the will to live unless they help the prisoner make larger sense out of his apparently senseless suffering. It is here that we encounter the central theme of existentialism. Existentialism. To live is to suffer. To survive is to find meaning in the suffering. If there is a purpose in life at all, there must be a purpose in suffering and in dying. But no man can tell another what this purpose is. Each must find out for himself and must accept the responsibility that his answer prescribes. If he succeeds, he will continue to grow despite all indignities. Frankel is fond of quoting Nietzsche. N-I-E-T-Z-S-C-H-E. It must it's a person. I don't know him though. Or I've never heard of him. He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. In the concentration camp, every circumstance conspires to make the prisoner lose his hold. All the familiar goals in life are snatched away. One alone remains as the last of the human freedoms, the ability to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances. And that predominantly is really what this book is about, is that um, no one, they can take people of the world of power or governments, they can take every single thing away from the human soul. It can break you in so many ways, but what they cannot take, they can take every aspect except the attitude you choose to look through spectacles that are given to you while you're suffering. And you, the only thing you have, they can't take away how you choose your attitudes that you choose. They just can't do it. I find that so true. Each must find out for himself and must accept the responsibility that his answer prescribes. If he succeeds, he will continue to grow in spite of all indignities. I found that interesting. In the concentration camp, very cir- circumstance conspires to make the prisoner lose his hold. All the familiar goals in life are snatched away. One alone remains as the last of human freedoms, the ability to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances. This ultimate freedom recognizes by the ancient Stoics as well as by modern existentialisms takes on a vivid significance in Frankel's story. The prisoners were only average men, but some, at least by choosing to be worthy of their suffering, proved man's capacity to rise above his outward fate. As a psychotherapist, the author, of course, wants to know how men can be helped to achieve his distinctively human capacity. How can one awaken in a patient the feelings that he is responsible to life for something, however grim his circumstances may be? Frankel gives us 
a moving account of one collective therapeutic session he held with his fellow prisoners. At the publisher's request, Dr. Frankel has edited a statement of the basic tenets of logotherapy as well as bibliography up to now most of the publications of this third Vienna school of psychotherapy the predecessors being the Freudian and Adlerian schools have been chiefly in German which is very hard to pronounce those words even though English is a Germanic language the reader will therefore welcome Dr. Frankel's supplement to his personal narrative unlike many European existentialisms excuse me Unlike many European existentialists, Frankel is neither pessimistic nor anti-religious. On the contrary, for a writer who faces fully the obliquitary of suffering and the forces of evil, he takes a surprisingly hopeful view of man's capacity to transcend his predicament and discover an adequate guiding truth. I recommend this little book wholeheartedly. For it is a gem of dramatic narrative focused upon the deepest of human problems. I agree. And that was uh, Gordon Allport who wrote that. And this book, for me, it really made me realize no matter what we go through, there's always somebody out there who has been through so much more but has so much more to teach the world or me or whoever is going through these certain um, hardships, you know. <sighs> One serves as the extantial validation of my theories. Thus, both parts mutually support their credibility. I had none of this in mind when I wrote the book in 1945, says Frankel, and I did so within nine successive days and with the firm determination that the book would be published anonymously. In fact, the first printing of the original German version does not show my name on the cover though at the last moment just before the book's initial publication i did finally give in to my friends who had urged me to let it be published with my name at least on the title page donka shane my friend donka shane that means thank you in german <laughs> at first however it had been written with the absolute conviction that as an autonomous Opus, it could never earn its author literary fame. I had wanted to simply to convey to the reader by way of a concrete example that life holds a potential meaning under any condition, even the most miserable ones. And I thought that was important to uh, include here just for the fact that this book is amazing, you guys. I mean, it just teaches you so much about even Auschwitz in just... He literally dissects every thought a human has while coming into um, a concentration camp. You know, experiences in a concentration camp. That's actually the first title. That's part one of this book. This book does not claim to be an account of facts and events, but a personal experience. Experiences which millions of prisoners have suffered from time and time again. And it is the inside story of the concentration camp told by one of its survivors. The tale is not concerned with the great horrors which have already been described often enough, but the multitude of small torments. In other words, 
it will try to answer this question. How was everyday life in a concentration camp reflected in the mind of the average prisoner? Most of the events described here did not take place in the large and famous camps, but in the small ones where most of the real extermination took place. This story is not about suffering and death of great heroes and martyrs, nor is it about the prominent capos, prisoners who acted as trustees, having special privileges, or well-known prisoners. Thus, it is not so much concerned with the suffering of the mighty, but with the sacrifices, the crucifixion, and the deaths of the great army of unknown and unrecorded victims. It was these common prisoners who bore no distinguishing marks on their sleeves, whom the capos really despised. While these ordinary prisoners had little or nothing to eat, the capos were never hungry. In fact, many of the capos feared better in the camp, excuse me, they fared better in the camp than they had in their entire lives. Often they were harder on the prisoners than were the guards and beat them more cruelly than the SS men did. And that's a uh, SS is a storm a storm soldier. Those capos, of course, were chosen only from those prisoners whose characters promised to make them suitable for such procedures. And if they did not comply with what was expected of them, they were immediately demoted. They soon became much like SS men and the camp wardens and may be judged on a similar psychological basis. It is easy for the outsider to get the wrong conception of camp life, a conception mingled with sentiment and pity. Little does he know of the hard fight for existence which raged among the prisoners. This was one, excuse me, this was an unrelenting struggle for daily bread and for life itself, for one's own sake or that of a good friend. Let us take the case of a transport which was officially announced to transfer a certain number of prisoners to another camp, but it was fairly safe guess that it, its final destination would be the gas chamber. A selection of sick or feeble prisoners incapable of work would be sent to one of the big central camps which were fitted with gas chambers and crematories. Cream, crematoriums. The selection process was the signal for a free fight among all the prisoners or a group against a group. All that mattered was that one's own name and that one's friend were crossed off the list of victims, though everyone knew that for each man saved another victim had to be found. A determined number of prisoners had to go with each transport. It did not really matter which since each of them was nothing but a number. On their admission to the camp, at least this was the method in Auschwitz, all their documents had been taken from them together with their other possessions. Each prisoner, therefore, had had an opportunity to claim a fictitious name or profession, and for various reasons many did this. The authorities were interested only in the captives' numbers. These numbers were often tattooed on their skin and also had to be sewn to a certain spot on the trousers, jacket, or coat. Any guard who wanted to make a charge against a prisoner just glanced at his number 
and how we dreaded such glances. He never asked for his name. To return to the convoy about to depart, there was neither time nor desire to consider moral or ethical issues. Every man was controlled by one thought only, to keep himself alive for the family waiting for him at home, and to save his friends with no hesitation. Therefore, he would arrange for another prisoner, another number, to take his place in the transport. As I have already mentioned, the process of selecting capos was a negative one. Only the most brutal of the prisoners were chosen for this job, although there were many, some happy exceptions. But apart from the section of capos which was undertaken by the SS, there was a sort of self-selecting process going on the whole time among all the prisoners. On the average, only those prisoners could keep alive who, after years of trekking from camp to camp, had lost all scruples in their fight for existence. They were prepared to use every means, honest and otherwise, even brutal force, theft, and betrayal of, to their friends in order to save themselves. We, who have come back by the aid of many lucky chances or miracles, whatever one may choose to call them, we know... The best of us did not return. Many factual accounts about concentration camps are already on record. Here, facts will be significant only as far as they are part of man's experiences. It is the exact nature of these experiences that the following essay will attempt to describe. For those who have been inmates in a camp, it will attempt to explain their experiences in the light of present-day knowledge. And for those who have never been inside, it may help them to com comprehend and, above all, to understand the experiences of that only too small percentage of prisoners who survived and who now find life very difficult. These former prison prisoners often say, We dislike talking about our experiences. No explanations are needed for those who have been inside, and the others will understand neither how we felt then nor how we feel now. To attempt a methodical presentation of the subject is very difficult, as psychology requires a certain scientific detachment, but does a man who makes his observations while he himself is a prisoner possess the necessary detachment? Such detachment is granted to the outsider, but he is too far removed to make any statements to real value. Only the man inside knows. His judgments may not be objective. His evaluations may be out of proportion. This is inevitable. This is inevitable. An attempt must be made to avoid any personal bias, and that is the real difficulty of a book of this kind. At times, it will be necessary to have the courage to tell of very intimate experiences. I had intended to write this book anonymously using my prison number only, but when my manuscript was completed, I saw that as an anonymous publication, it would lose half of its value and that I must have the courage to state my convictions openly. Ah, and that was the fear of exposure because when traumatizing things happen to us, we love to hide and we love to, you know, find reasons not to revisit those memories. 
I therefore refrained from deleting any of the passages in spite of an intense dislike of the exhibitionism. And this is the Only You podcast where I do book reviews. My name is Lo Jackson, and this is Man's Search for Meaning by Dr. Viktor Frankl. He was, he actually was a prisoner in Auschwitz, and um, his account of the life that he lived there is, um, oh, it's just, um, it's just unreal. The book is, uh, the book is a great read, you guys. Get out there and get it. Um, I want to tell you some of the main takeaways of this book that I found. Um, number one, when you find a why to live for, you can overcome any obstacle. Three types of whys to live for, someone you love, some something you love, triumph of overcoming suffering. Finding someone you love and something you love, love is powerful, and loving a human can make you see the true depths of their personality. The second takeaway, um, no, nobody... Nobody can decide your attitude towards a situation except yourself. Your attitude is one of the biggest freedoms you have as a human being because nobody can choose it for you. And that's, dude, that's totally true, you know? Um, The third one, instead of finding the super meaning to life, find value in making every moment valuable. These are my takeaways that I'm doing on Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Um, You know, instead of finding the super meaning to life, find value in making every moment valuable. Just like a movie of a thousand different images, the full meaning isn't there until all the pieces are put together. Number four, don't judge someone unless you can honestly say in the same situation you wouldn't do that same thing. And that's hard for everybody out there to do, but it's it's so hard easy to do the wrong thing and it's always so hard to do the right thing and i think one of the biggest suffering um uh, one of the biggest uh suffrages as a society is that everyone suffers from that fourth takeaway is they judge someone because uh they think that they wouldn't do that but they don't know because they've never been in that they've never been put in that kind of situation So like Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And that's the God's honest truth. And the same goes for me. Um, My fifth one, my fifth takeaway is uh, suffering promotes growth. And you you can um, suffer more than you think. Find the positives of overcoming a difficult problem and learn from it. Yeah, suffering promotes growth. And you can suffer more than you think. So find positives of overcoming a difficult problem and learn from it. And we all have um, problems with that at times. It just depends on if we want to learn or if we don't want to learn about it or if we like something or we dislike something. Because when you retain information about something you read, it's because you found that information uh, likable. You you, you enjoyed it. Um, My sixth takeaway of A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl is be appreciative of where you live and the situations you are in right now. (laughs) 
even in suffering, you guys. And in reality, I'm I've been going through a lot of suffering here um, recently. All my kids are getting ready to be out of the house this year. I literally have one at home, and that's that's it. Like I'm, we're gonna be empty nesters, and it's so weird, and it's so hard to get um, acclimated, you know, uh, or be appreciative of the way I'm living right now, just for the fact that I've lived this way for 20 years. I don't know anything different, but. I'm learning to find joy and knowing that soon I'm going to be able to take vacations and go where I want to, do what I want to, and not have the responsibility of a new, another human being except for when they call or reach out to me. And that is actually a hard situation to um, be appreciative of. And my seventh takeaway of A Man's Search for Meaning by B Viktor Frankl is goals need to have some struggle with them. Um, and that's to be meaningful, obviously. Um, you have overcome an obstacle to, or I mean, excuse me, you have, to, you have to overcome an obstacle to really see how great the goal was you, that you achieved. Or also uh, set a goal to aim for. Stop worrying about where you fit in the grand scheme of things and focus on achieving your goal. In which we all have problems achieving goals because there are so many little things in our way at this point in history there's gadgets in every street corner they got tvs hanging on times square in new york city now you know i mean there's so many distractions out there that uh it's hard to accomplish our goals even though we all want to i shall leave it to others to distill the contents of this book into dry theories these might become a contribution to the psychology of prison life, which was investigated after the First World War, and which acquainted us with the syndrome of barbed wire sickness. Oh, and that's a real sickness, you guys. Um, the first penitentiary in the United States was built in Philadelphia in 1790, and they called it a penitentiary for a reason, because when you checked in, they handed you a Bible, um, and put you in a six by nine and told you to repent for your sins. And so the whole time you were there, you had a Bible and you were there to repent for your sins. And that's why they call it penitentiary. We are indebted to the second world war for enriching our knowledge of the psychotherapy of the masses. If I may quote a variation of the well-known phrase and title of a book by Laban, for the war gave us the war of nerves, and it gave us the concentration camp. As this story is about my experiences as an ordinary prisoner, it is important that I mention, not, with, not without pride, that I was not employed as a psychiatrist in camp or even a doctor, except for the last few weeks. A few of my colleagues were lucky enough to be employed in poorly heated first aid post applying bandages made of scraps of waste paper but i was number 119,104 and most of the time i was digging and laying tracks for rail lines one uh, at one time my job was to dig a tunnel without help for a water main under a road this feat did not go rewarded 
unrewarded. Just before Christmas 1944, I was presented with a gift of so-called premium coupons. These were issued by the construction firm to which we were practically sold as slaves. The firm paid the camp authorities to fix price per day per prisoner. The coupons cost the firm 50 per pharynx each and could be exchanged for six cigarettes. Often weeks later, although they sometimes lost their uh, validity, I became the proud owner of a token worth 12 cigarettes. But more important, the cigarettes could be exchanged for 12 soups, and 12 soups were often a very real respite from starvation. The privilege of actually smoking cigarettes was reserved for the capo, and that's the guards at the concentration camp, you guys, the capos, who had his assured quota of weekly coupons, or possibly a prisoner who worked as a foreman in a warehouse or workshop and received a few cigarettes in exchange for doing a dangerous job. The only exceptions to this were those who had lost the will to live and wanted to enjoy their last days. Thus, when we saw a comrade smoking his own cigarettes, we knew he had given up faith in his strength to carry on and, once lost, the will to live seldom returned. This is the only you podcast. Your boy Lo Jackson coming to you live. And I'm reading to you A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, a book written in 1946. And you can actually find this book online for free if you are really interested in it. I find this book to be one of the greatest reads I ever read. This is the second time I've uh, read this book in the last year. Um, And if you're out there lost, you're looking for hope, you don't know what to do, I would start with this book right here, A Man's Search for Meaning, because it just breaks down so many different barriers inside your mind and lets you know that you are not alone, that there are people out there that have been through things that can... They, there are people out there that have been through things that know how to write, and when they write, their words literally tear down every barrier inside your mind because you know when you read their words how true and how real and what they really went through is real, and you just you can feel it. The symptom that characterizes the first phase is shock. Under certain conditions, shock may even precede the prisoner's formal admission to the camp. I shall give as, as an example the circumstances of my own admission. 1,500 persons had been traveling by train for several days and nights. There were 80 people in each coach. All had to lie on top of their luggage and few remem- remnants of their personal possessions. The carriages were so full that only... The top parts of the windows were free to let in the gray of dawn. Everyone expected the train to head for some munitions factory in which we would be employed as forced labor. We did not know whether we were still in Celia or already in Poland. The engine's whistle, <clears throat> the engine's whistle had an uncanny sound like a cry for help sent out in a commiseration for the unhappy load which it was destined to lead into perdition. Then the train shunted, obviously nearing a main station. Suddenly a cry broke from the ranks of the anxious passengers. There is a sign, Auschwitz! Everyone's heart missed a beat 
At that moment, Auschwitz, the very name stood for all that was horrible. Gas chambers, crematoriums, massacres. Slowly, almost hesitatingly, the train moved on as if it wanted to spare its passengers the dreadful realization as long as possible. Auschwitz. Thank you guys for listening. This is the Only You Podcast. This is your boy, Lo Jackson. And I just got done reading a little of A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. You need to go out and check this out. Thank you for following me. Thank you for sharing me. I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. I'm on YouTube. And if you have any questions, you guys can email me at onlyupodcast2022. That's Y-O-U. <laughs> yeah, you. That's you. Come on, you guys. Come and follow me or email me with your questions. I appreciate it, and thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. And like I said, be good to yourselves.